Hey, hey, welcome back everyone to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to have on the call today, finally, Seth Godin, one of my favorite writers, authors, bloggers, and just genuine thought leaders in the space of entrepreneurship and marketing. I brought Seth on the show today to talk about his new book, This Is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see which in a lot of ways to me is classic Seth. It's in a lot of ways an evolution or summation of many of the ideas he's explored in books like Poke the Box and Tribes and Permission Marketing. And in a lot of ways, it's exploring completely new territory where he gets into some of the more practical and pragmatic elements of marketing. And so in today's conversation, we explore the book, broadly speaking, how Seth has evolved and grown as a writer. What's changed from when he started his blog about a decade ago to today? And what it's been like to show up every day, continue to write and publish every day, what it's been like to write 18 bestsellers. And we also take a deep dive into some really practical and pragmatic ideas around marketing, specifically on the topics of tension. What is it? How do we create it to improve the experience that one of our customers has before making the purchase? We talk about the smallest viable market, what that is and how you can create one and why you should look at the smallest market that you can serve instead of the scale at which you can build something. We talk about Seth Godin's XY axis for choosing your edge and your extreme in the market so you can stand out in a noisy, overcrowded marketplace. My big takeaway from my conversation with Seth was this idea of goals and narrative, that your customer has a goal and they live within a framework or narrative or story that they're telling themselves. And that dictates what they see, the facts they see or facts they don't see, the information that's in front of them and how they perceive it. And it influences their buying decisions. And so your objective as a marketer is to be able to speak the same language, tell a similar story, but with a positive future and something that can help pull them out of where they are to where they want to be. So needless to say, I'm pretty excited to share today's conversation with you. If you'd like to check out the show notes where I have a bunch more information and links to Seth's new book, This Is Marketing, just go to tomworkus.com slash podcast. And of course, you can always search This Is Marketing by Seth Godin on Google or check it out on Amazon. The book is available now and I highly recommend it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Seth, first I want to say thank you for being on In the Trenches. It's great to have you here finally. Well, it's a privilege. I know it's not easy to show up on a regular basis with the work you do. So thank you for including me. Well, I appreciate it. And I know, as we mentioned offline, I got a big collection of your books right behind me. So I've done my reading and I'm excited for this interview. It's like I've been prepping for the last five or six years or so, maybe longer, okay. actually. I'll try not to let you down. <laughs> there we go. So you just came out with a new book and I want to get into it a little bit. But one of the things that you highlight that I thought was really interesting was this idea of the marketer as change agent. And I'm really curious what you mean by change in this context for the marketer. What does that mean? What does that mean to create change or to be a change agent? Accountants keep score. We can all agree on that. That the people who work on the production line produce stuff. That the legal people either get you out of legal trouble or keep you from getting in. So what do marketers do? Marketers make change happen. If no change happens, the marketer didn't do her job. Marketing is the act of changing the culture, changing minds, changing transactions, making change happen. And the reason that marketing is so challenging for people is they don't want to be on that hook. So a key part of my work is helping people see that even if they're not a bootstrapping entrepreneur like many of the people listening today are, they're still on the hook to make a change happen. And you got to be able to say really clearly what that change is. Otherwise, it's like driving with a blindfold on. Well, when you say on the hook, what I think of is the term responsibility and the 
well, that's it. If you're on the hook, you're responsible then. You're responsible for some sort of outcome. You put it out there, you have to step up and make sure it happens. So if you're promising something, you have to deliver on it. And I know you kind of write about that in the book. I'm curious, like if in your experience, because you've written for so long and to such a, a wide variety of readers, and I'm sure you've had a lot of people attend your events, buy your programs, buy your books, who read and then never actually start. And I'm curious if it's a fear of that responsibility, the burden of responsibility, if that's kind of your take on it. Yeah, responsibility is a great place to start because it's different than authority. Traditional Western organizations are based on authority and authority is required if you're going to be a manager. The manager says, do this because I said so. And if you don't do it, you're fired. I have the authority to discipline you. Leaders aren't like that. Leaders don't come from a place of authority. They come from a place of responsibility. They say, I'm going over there. Who wants to come? Come with me. So if you think about you're in a crowded movie theater and you smell smoke and you want people to leave, in that moment, you will take responsibility. You don't have the authority to empty the theater, but you can take responsibility. And then the next words out of your mouth are marketing words. So if you just start shrieking, that's one kind of marketing. Another kind of marketing would be to go turn on the lights in the theater. Another, I mean, you know, with a hundred ways you could market the idea of we need to leave this theater that will safely get people out of there before a disaster occurs. That's marketing. And most people in that setting would wait for someone else to empty the theater. And my whole work, whether I'm talking about marketing or leadership or anything else, has been around, about will you choose to take that responsibility? I feel like that was kind of the premise too of poke the box. I mean, of you know, books, I know it's a, it's sure. a consistent theme throughout that one in particular, like always stood out to me is like, Hey, just like, go do something, ship something, do it. And like, take that responsibility. And this kind of ties into my next question, which is, I believe this is your 19th book. You've written 18 international bestsellers. That's right. How has, I'm curious from a personal point of view, how has this one been different for you? With that many books, you, you might maybe wonder, like, is there something new I could even say here? I'm curious from a personal point of view yeah. how you even like tackle a project like this. Well, you know, early on, my narrative was similar to many other people who write their narrative, which is, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do this again. People are going to hate this. I'm not going to be able to finish writing it. It's too personal. It's not personal enough. And you feel like you're on quicksand, that you can't find a foundation, that it's hard to find your voice. And that if anything good happens, it's a miracle. And usually after someone writes their first book, they're done because that was such an extreme experience. But what I say to people who have finished their third book is you're in it for good now because you're hooked. And for the first, I don't know, dozen books, I was deep into the book publishing world. It's where I came from. I was a book packager and I loved the people. I loved the process. And it was real, I was really, I felt like my ego and myself were at stake. And once I found my footing, then I could switch to being generous and switch to saying not, I have to write a book because I've never written a book to get a paycheck. It was, I get to write a book. I get this chance to turn on some lights and to help some people. But I'm well aware that I'm a hypocrite. And about five or six years ago, I said to the book publishing industry, this is too broken. There's too many hoops to jump through. I'll go do this on my own. And I did for a bunch of books and they worked really well. The last one, Your Turn, sold over 150,000 copies without being in one store. But for this book, for a couple of reasons, I acknowledged my hypocrisy and I said, I want to just write a book. I don't want to deal with sales tax and I don't want to deal with fulfillment. I don't want to deal with warehouse. I just want to write a book. I have something I want to say. And the beauty of 
of working with a publisher who I trust and who trusts me is I could just do that. And so the idea of this is it's based on a workshop we've run for more than 6,000 people called This Is Marketing. And I said, if I could just show up on the page, how would I talk to people in a way that could teach them what we teach them live, but for people who don't want to make that kind of commitment? And every, I have to say, every draft, every page actually gave me a lot of pleasure. I felt like this was a treat for me to be able to do this work. And then I forced myself to stretch to the point where I sweated a little bit. But um, Holy Megalium, the finished book, it's a pleasure. And I'm glad to be back at it. Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. It's good to read. And I know people are going to love it. And when people are listening to this, it will be live. So I will encourage them to go check it out. One question I had was, this kind of ties into kind of your, I think, journey as an author too. But I know one of you, the first things you started was with a blog. You started writing relatively consistently. And I think you've been writing a blog every day for many, many years now, which I just, the idea of that is like overwhelming, I think, to anybody maybe who's tried to start writing like every day. And so I guess I wonder when it comes to this book and also your blog, like the Seth Godin today, how is he different than the one that started years ago? Like when you first started that blog and started writing and sharing, I mean that like, I guess, foundationally if there's any difference in the way maybe you approach the work. And then also, like, I guess from an ex- wisdom, a point or a standpoint of wisdom and experience, sure. like, do you ever find yourself looking back on old stuff and be like, I was way off on there. And now my thinking has actually changed. And it's, it's changed as a result of writing so much and exploring these subjects for so long. Well, let me try a trench analogy, if I could, because yeah. I think that might be useful to people who are listening. If you view what you're doing as being in a trench, you have two problems. The first one is you're below ground and everyone else is above you. And the second one is that if you know anything about history, you got to think about World War I, which was not pretty. And it was about warfare. When I was struggling all those years, I mean, my first 10 years as an independent were really, really hard. I felt like I was drowning. I felt like a fraud sometimes. But I also knew I saw something that other people didn't see. And I decided the generous thing to do would be to share those things to make an assertion, make a ruckus, make an opportunity and see who would accept it. And so I guess the lesson for someone who thinks of themselves as a drowning entrepreneur is to recast that as a lifeguard. And you're not going to be able to save everybody. But if you can save one person, even if you don't get paid for it, then tomorrow someone else is going to want you to save them. And saving them doesn't mean you're keeping them from dying, but it might mean you're helping them get what they want. And so the essence of the message in This Is Marketing is we don't market at people or to them. We market with them. We have a flashlight, we have a point of view, and they're a little lost. And if they want our help, if they're enrolled in that journey, then we get to do that work we're proud of. I love that. And you bring up, I think, to use the word dance quite often in the book, or at least more than once where I noticed it. I was like, that's an interesting analogy because it is. It's a collaborative right? This, this, this type of marketing that you're describing. Well, you kind of organized it in permission marketing kind of originally, right? So is, that has been always kind of like a, a foundational theme of yours. And I guess the way you kind of perceive marketing is it. Yeah, okay? I mean, I guess because I'm a teacher, part of me is tempted to teach a new thing every time. Like you want to learn how to juggle? I'll teach you how to juggle. But what I did with this is marketing is answered the requests that I get the most, which is, yeah, we read that, but we don't know what to do. Tell us how to do that. So this is not that philosophical. It's more tactical than my typical book. Because what I'm saying to people is, if you are enrolled in this journey and if you care, here are a bunch of things to think about and act upon 
in order to make this difference. You know, I, I made, our listeners can't see this, but engraved popsicle sticks with some of the basic concepts there. Because if you can ask yourself these questions as you're thinking about the change you want to make, you're more likely to answer them. And so it's not about, here's a secret tactic. It's not about, you should tweet on Thursdays at 9 a.m. It's, who's it for? What's it for? What change are we trying to make? How can we make things better by making better things? Okay, so let's, this is the perfect segue to get kind of into kind of the nitty gritty of the book itself. Because there's a few things that I did, I, th- I did think were like, yeah, you know, interesting approaches to, to these ideas, these fundamental ideas of how do, we, how do we sell? How do we get an idea out there? How do we interact and engage with the potential customer, the client, et cetera? Okay, so there's a couple, a few things I want to I tackle. But the first thing was you brought this up throughout the book and it's this idea of showing up consistently over time and just, you know, show up, do the work, like take responsibility, you know, and establish what your goals are. And, and again, it's like that dance, but consistency was, was really important. And also something along the lines of like time, like doing the work and doing it consistently and, and, and actually investing time in it. And one thing you've kind of been critical of, it seems to me, are people that take shortcuts at the, maybe at the expense of something else we'll say, maybe not just a shortcut, but at, at the expense of something. So there's like this idea of called growth hacking that you probably have heard about in the last maybe yeah. five or six years. What's your perspective on something like that, where it's like, here's a way that we could do something faster and better by thinking outside of the box, quote unquote, and doing things that would get us maybe to a result faster, getting us to in front of an audience faster or doing these things. Like, would you feel that that is just like the wrong path? Or it's a path to that kind of commodity work that you talk about or a path to, I don't know, self-destruction that it's, or is there, is there value in it in some way, shape, or form? And maybe it's how we do it that matters. Okay. So like many good things, it's easy for someone to misuse and misunderstand, right? So when Andrew Chen invented the idea of growth hacking, what he was doing was applying systems thinking to creating network effects that lead to viral growth. So let me break down those three things. Systems thinking. Systems thinking is the idea that everything we do changes the culture. And if we do something that changes the culture that leads to more change in the correct direction, then we're on to something. And network effects are the idea that if you make something that works better when other people use it, it will get used more. And that's Metcalf's law and the idea that fax machines grew not because of advertising, but because fax machines work better if you send faxes to other people, which means they have to get a fax machine. So when I apply those two ideas together, if I'm an ethical, successful growth hacker, it is not the negative black hat hacking that someone might think of. It has nothing to do with that. It says, how do I organize my enterprise so that it is likely to spread? So here's an example of a growth hack. Ray Kroc says to people, if you give me money, I will let you open a McDonald's. That's a growth hack. And the reason it's a growth hack is once someone opens a McDonald's, they will market the McDonald's. They will promote the McDonald's. That will make it likely someone else will want to open a McDonald's. And then the system and the So the end result is 60 years later, every day, one out of seven Americans eats in a McDonald's. because that's growth hacking. That's not the same as a pop-up, a pop-under, let's trick this person, let's hack Facebook. Let's That's nonsense. And I think Andrew is probably sad every time someone misuses the idea of growth hacking. Okay. I was really curious about that. So that makes sense. It sounds like execution is, is critical, the, the, how we actually do so. Well, I think it's more than execution. I think it's mm. intent, right? So the intent of most of the people who hustle 
me is not to help me. Their intent, if they were honest, is to help themselves. They're just waiting for the right hook. And they're jabbing because they have to, but that's not why they're there. They're not there to be helpful. And the fact, the way you can tell for sure is if you weren't getting paid for it, would you do this? And the answer is no, because I'm looking for something. Yep. And, you know, I love doing this podcast with you. And this is probably my 200th podcast. I don't get paid to do podcasts, right? I'm not here to sell 12 copies of my book. I'm here because I have something I want to teach people. Yeah. That's, if you want to call that ethical growth hacking, you can. But my point is, if you find yourself looking for shortcuts because you deserve them, then you're probably not doing marketing the way I describe it. Well, this is good because I, I like this. And you said like intent. Okay. So you, you actually kind of get into intent. I don't know if you use the word in the book, but, but baby, you do talk about goals and you talk about narrative. And I think this is fantastic because I've been going down this rabbit hole of like visual perception re, uh, recently. What do we perceive? How do our values like in, and motivational substructures influence what we actually see? And sure. I know you've written about this before, like the invisible gorilla, idea and stuff like that. And um, you've shared those kind of things. And, and I was recently reading, I think it's called An Ecological Approach to Visual Perception, which is, sounds as, as exciting as it, as it like is. Sounds like a great book. Yeah. It actually is really good. And it talks about like, we don't see with just our eyes, right? We see with a lot more, it's more than just our eyes. It's more than just here's like this like piece of ourselves, but it's actually the whole body and it's sure. in the world. And you talk about this from a marketer standpoint in a different way. You kind of say, in one part of this, you talk about the X, Y axis and choose like two variables and let's see where you, where you overlay and what your extremes are and how that lines up with the market itself, with this group of people. And so I'm also wondering, you talk about when we talk about kind of going back to the goals and the narrative of these, these customers, how do you line that up in terms of like knowing that whatever their goals are, that will influence how they perceive or what they even perceive, what facts they even see. Like right. that influences a lot. And how do you make sure that like, I guess what you're doing lines up with their goals and their narratives? Because I guess the, the goal is, or the objective here isn't to change their goal or change their motivational substructure, but to align with it and then produce or then create kind of like this, this change. I know that's a lot right there, but I'm just curious. There, if is, you- a, there is a lot there. And I don't think I can use the radio to describe successfully positioning XY graphs. So I'm going to set mm-hmm. that aside and leave that for sure. you. But we must begin with the idea of the smallest viable audience, which is the most radical idea in the book, which is everyone has taught every single business person from the beginning of time, you want the largest possible audience because the largest possible audience gives you the most customers, which lets you make the biggest impact. I am arguing that in today's world, you want the smallest viable audience because the internet is not a mass medium. It is many, many micro mediums. So once you have the luxury of saying, I only made this for 200 people, I only made this for 2000 people, everything changes. So let's say what you do for a living is organic weed killing in Flagstaff, Arizona. So how many customers do you actually need? I'm guessing 2000, 2000 customers, and you are very happy. So if someone says, hi, I live in Denver, you say, sorry, can't help you. Here's the phone number of someone who does. That's obvious, right? But there are also people in Flagstaff, Arizona, who hate the idea of organic stuff. So if you wanted to, you could train them really hard to say, no, 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 organic's important, no, 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 Or you could just say, I only get 2,000 customers. Why don't I start with people who already believe that they want organic? Let's begin with those people. Well, what else do those people already believe? So once I 
narrow it down to, oh, here's a group of people who want this, who believe this, who are likely to see this. If that's who I am for, and I'm only for those people, what choices will I make? And then you can be consistent in the choices that you make from the car you drive around town to the words you use on your billboard that only resonate with the right people because the wrong people are going to ignore you anyway. And it's so freeing. You know, I decided seven years ago to stop looking for new readers, not trying to get more people to read my blog, not trying to get more people to read my books. If someone wants to tell their friend, feel free. But I'm not out there in the world saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And as a result, I can write differently because instead of finding readers for my writing, I'm finding writing for my readers. And that changes your whole life. Do you feel like though that's something that it means that that takes time and it kind of comes back to that time idea and showing up, you have to earn it for you to be able to get to that point. So that sounds like that's a prerequisite to it, to be able to get to that point where you can just say like, I'm not, I don't need to grow this anymore. I'm going to just write to this audience that I have already. Well, it's all the foundational things you have to do beforehand. It's that hard work, the 10 years you said that were kind of grueling before. Yes. But so if someone comes to me and says, I'm in a hurry, I don't have a lot of resources. I want to be really, really big and really, really profitable. Can you help me? My answer is no, because if there was a way to do that, you would have done it already. I'm here to show you that the most reliable path, pick any hero you've got, pick anybody you admire, they all found the same path and their path is generous, slow, and steady. So let me ask you this, when it comes to like the goals of the market, the, the group of people want to serve, that minimal viable, was it, sorry, was it audience minimal viable? I didn't viable? say minimum, I said smallest because those are different. Smallest viable audience. Smallest viable audience, right. And I know you talk about that and you say, what is that amount that you need? How do you figure that out? Like, is that something you're just like, well, this is the space I'm in. This is what the average, like, because that's kind of a question that begets more questions. It's like, well, what is customer worth? And I'm I'm sure that's kind of why you position it that way. It's like start to explore that and really think through it. How do you kind of go through that? Or has anybody asked you to kind of like explain or expand on that to help somebody figure that piece out? So it's pretty straightforward if we're in the physical world. If I have a theater, with 100 seats in it. I know what my maximum audience is. I know how much a ticket costs. And I know how few people could be in the theater before I would lose money, right? So if, that, if it's a situation like that, I say 72 people a night. That's my smallest viable audience. If I know I can only serve 100 max, 72 is my min, now I know what I'm out for. Everyone in the Broadway theater world doesn't understand this, everyone. If it's something digital, then we get greedy because we say, well, I wrote this software, It doesn't cost me anything for more people to use it. Therefore, I need 10 million people to be my customer, right? Well, I was just reading this morning, Slack is now worth more than $7 billion, but they've only got 8 million users. That's all. Do the math. Yeah. Right? So what's the smallest viable audience for a product like Slack? I'm guessing... 1,000 paying customers, maybe 3,000 paying customers, and they wouldn't go out of business. So start there. If you're only going to have 3,000 people paying you, which 3,000 people? Who are the best possible 3,000 people? What makes them better? Not only are they willing to pay you, they're loudmouths. They're insistent that everyone around them use Slack too, that that core, if I could delight them, make them sing and dance on my behalf, my marketing problems go away. I love it. So I want to ask you a question about let me think about this. It was tied into goals and narrative. Oh, you talk about tension a lot in this yeah. about creating and relieving tension. Would you explore that and share that kind of with, with the listeners? I'm really curious sure. about this. This is another place where people get hung up. They would like to remove all tension 
and have people simply slide into saying yes, slide into becoming good customers. That never happens. That the guy who all his life has dreamed of driving a Harley goes to the Harley dealership, picks the bike of his dreams, it's $18,000. In the 30 seconds before he writes the check, he's sweating bullets. His heart rate goes up. He's not happy. He's tense. Why is that? Because change is about to happen and change always causes tension. And the change is, well, what if my wife hates it? And what if it's not as good as I hoped it was going to be? And what if I get laid off and I can't make the rest of the payments? And what if, and what if, and what if, and what if? So surrounded by all those what ifs, he's probably not going to buy the motorcycle unless there's tension. And the tension that gets added is, but if I don't do it today, I'm never going to do it. But if I don't do it today, this bike won't be here tomorrow. But if I don't do it today, I won't be able to drive to my reunion next week. And once there's more tension on the side of if I don't do it today than on the side of, oh my God, I'll do it today. So what marketers do is we create the tension, the tension of being left behind, the tension of being left out, the tension of what if, the tension of do I deserve this? We inflict this tension on people and they want us to because that's the way Western culture works. We're not all sitting in a hut like Marshall Salins wrote about all those years ago. Cavemen were super happy, but all cavemen did was nothing, right? And we could go back to that world. You, you know, you find a buddy to scrape the lice off you and you scrape the lice off them and that's a good day. But we didn't build that world. We built this world and this world is filled with the creation of tension and the release of tension. Can you talk me through that? That was actually a great example. And I'm curious if you could explore it in not more depth per se, but like in that example, like somebody comes, this person obviously wants a Harley. They came, they're interested in, like if we just roll with this analogy or if we want to shift it up. Sure. But okay, that starts with like, okay, that's probably the perfect customer. That kind of ties into, it's like, if you only had 10 or 100 or 1,000 customers, it's like that guy that's hungry and wants to buy this, this Harley. That's a good place to start. And they come and they have this interest. And I guess I see this a lot where we think that, I guess as marketers, as entrepreneurs and stuff like that, if somebody already wants it, it's like the deal should already be closed. Like it just should just be done. Like I feel like there, there shouldn't be a lot that I need to do to just go ahead, just like sign the dotted line. What you're challenging me to think about is that, I mean, really in that, that context, even if somebody's really eager for this and wants it, there are things that I owe it to them in some ways to, to create this tension, even if they want this thing. Is that, am I capturing this correctly or am I a little off? Well, it's part of it. Let's figure out which moment in time we're talking about. Sure. It's entirely possible that his moment is not the moment when the check comes out of his wallet. Got it. It could have been the moment when he picked which dealer to go to. Could have been the moment when he decided to buy a Harley, not a BMW. There's some moment in time when marketing showed up. And in that moment, marketing told a story that he listened to that changed him. And so I am not arguing for high pressure sales tactics here. Please don't misunderstand if you're listening to this. What I'm arguing is, what else is your story for? Why else did you run that ad? Why else did you go to that Ask Me Anything? Why else? Why else? Of course, that's why you did it. You did it to tell a story that would change somebody from hiding to not hiding, from afraid to not afraid, from not eager to eager. That's what we do. If the story is true, if it holds up to scrutiny, if it's valuable over time, it'll spread. So that's why marketers are incented to tell the right story to the right people in a way they're proud of. So the way you frame the story, it sounds like there, we, we talked about a little bit about the idea of goals, but goals is like, that's the direction we're headed. We have like this city on the hill we're headed toward, but it's also, I think, creating or 
not creating, but defining, articulating, maybe showing the point A or the worst case scenario even. And to say, well, let's avoid that hell and let's move to this heaven, maybe not, not to get like into the religious analogies here, but you know, maybe that's a, actually a great story, broadly speaking. But um, how we, we maybe paint the picture of like, here's what life could be otherwise. And this nests with the person's goals and narrative already. Like they experience this. And then the object, like the thing that we want to bring them to, like hold their hand or, or show them, show them the way, follow me or, or walk with me. And I'll, I'll show you this other, be, this place of being or this, this end destination, this goal, this, this dream. You mentioned dreams a lot too. Is that kind of how we start to paint the picture through story? Is creating yeah, let, kind of let me try to, contrast. to make it a little less theological. For people who already believe blank and who already want blank, once you hear this story, you might become the kind of person who will take this action. But if you skip the first two steps and just yell your story to everybody, why are you surprised? You know, so you stand in Times Square and there, in order to get open mic night space, you got to get people to come to the comedy club. So there are all these not very funny comedians standing on the corner, hassling tourists to come to the comedy club. And they're handing out flyers and they're hassling. That's not a good way to do it. There are some people who are in New York tonight hoping to have a new experience, hoping to have a tourist experience that isn't like everybody else's, hoping to. I mean, make a list of the kind of generic hope that they have. And this is a big one, who are the kind of people who believe words they hear from someone on the street? Because there are a lot of people who don't. So if someone meets those two requirements, they could be in your minimum viable audience. By focusing on them and talking to them in a way they want to be talked to, you're way more likely to make an impact. I like that. That's super helpful. And so this comes off, I guess, throughout when it comes to marketing, it's like, it's not just, you know, we'll say kind of moving into the more practical or pragmatic. It's not just like, here's how to tell a story via, you know, content marketing or email, but it's, it's the, when you talk about story, it's like, it's everything. It's the brand itself. It's how you engage with the customers. It's what they want. It's how you help them get there. That's what, when you talk about that kind of storytelling, am I capturing that correctly? Yeah. So you and I are talking on video. I see that you are the kind of person that organizes your books by color and height. That's a story. Correct. You told me a story about yourself without even knowing it. And I have huge respect for someone who has enough confidence in themselves to follow that non-traditional method of organization. But that's a story. It's a story as much as it's a story when you buy a .com instead of a .ai address or whatever it is. Mm. So all the clues we're leaving are breadcrumbs. This is who we really are. Are you really the kind of person that organizes your books by color or did you just do it as a stunt? I'm not sure it matters. What matters is you chose to tell me this story. And if you are consistent in that, then I will expect you to act certain ways based on the clues you've given me already. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody recently. We were talking about, I think, something that kind of aligns with this a little bit. And, you know, people talk about product market fit a lot, right? And I don't know if this is, this is probably a thing. So this is just showing my, my ignorance, but we were talking about this idea like product channel fit. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, so like when you think about Tesla, there's a reason you don't see them in a car lot next to Ford and Chrysler dealerships. The experience would be completely different. And so it's like something about not just the product, not just like all this stuff, but it's actually the, we'll say the circumstances with which they kind of position the whole product and sell or, right. or make the offer is actually, it's as important as everything else, at least as important. It's at, at least, yes, yeah. that's exactly correct. So, you know, if you think about 
most of the stuff to get sold on Kickstarter could get sold at Bed Bath & Beyond instead. The person who shops at Bed Bath & Beyond is not buying on Kickstarter and vice versa. They're totally different places. So if you're going to tell the story of your product on Kickstarter, don't tell a Bed Bath & Beyond story. The Bed Bath & Beyond customer isn't even in the room. I love it. Okay. So I want to ask you a question about this. This is another area where you you explore in this book that I don't know if you've explored it before. And it's this, uh, let me see if I can pull up the chapter. You mentioned um, dominance and status and uh, and affiliation chapter. There we go. This I thought was really interesting. Can you give us an overview of kind of what you mean by status, domination, affiliation? Okay. So start with status. In every interaction in theater and in most interactions in the world where two creatures encounter each other of any kind from ants on up. The question is who gets to eat lunch first? Who gets to drink from the oasis first? It's hardwired into everything. And then in our culture, we've amplified that. And so when an interaction occurs, the question when two people interact is, am I going to move up or am I going to move down as a result of this? Some people are obsessed with moving up. They need to win the handshake. They need to win every element of every interaction. Some people they're sort of flexible. And some people amazingly want to move down. They view themselves as not deserving to have the door opened for them in any way. And we see this all the time, right? Like there's all these online courses for free. You have spare time. You're going home at night and spending it watching, I don't know, CBS. When instead you could spend an hour a day learning something for free. You don't because your perception of your status is cannot permit you to move up. Okay. So That's the first thing. So when people encounter the thing you are offering, they are asking themselves, what will this do to my status? What will my boss think if I buy this? What will my neighbors think if I wear this? These status conversations go on all the time in our head. Mm. And then it leads to the next thing, which is professional wrestling. Professional wrestling is the theater of status. Every interaction that you see in professional wrestling is a status role game right? Who's up, who's down, what happened to Hulk Hogan, blah, blah, blah. And some people really like to watch status games. Those are people who are into dominance. Who's up and who's down is the narrative of their life. That we don't care what we get as long as we see our enemies get hurt. That's a dominance narrative. But there are other people who spend most of their day worrying about affiliation. Who likes me? Who doesn't like me? Where do I fit in? Am I safe? So if you think about, for example, the civil rights movement in the 60s, we have Malcolm X and the Reverend King. Malcolm X played a dominance game and the people who supported him as well and the people who opposed him as well. And it did not end well for him. Whereas the Reverend King played an affiliation game. You may notice that he was never at the front of the parade. There were always people by his side, side by side, that there wasn't an institution They said, you're not allowed to speak in your church on this topic. It was broad and wide. So what that means is when you are crafting your story and what you stand for and what you sell, are you selling affiliation or are you selling status? Mm. Are you selling to people who want their status to move up or their status to move down? What's the role of dominance in what you do? So if you think about that book that went around for a while about picking up women, the game or whatever it was, that's 100% dominance. That's not Mm. about affiliation. So the kind of person who read it and got into it was in that moment anyway, on that day, playing games in their head about dominance. Whereas if you think about Dale Carnegie, 
The entire thesis of the book is about affiliation. Whose names do you know? Who knows your name? Where is the parallel? Not how do I beat you? So I think there's almost no store, no product, no service that you can talk about where you don't need to bring those things up. Are they mutually exclusive? As in like, I guess if I'm in, in a space where I'm looking at maybe what I am selling is like an increase in status of that person and what that person sees it as like, this will be an increase like in my, my perception of my own status within, we'll say this hierarchy that I define myself as and, and this product will help me move up that sure. um, hierarchy. But at the same time, does that mean that if I'm, if I'm selling something or marketing something that is, that will increase somebody's personal status or perception of their personal status, that it can't also be something that, like you mentioned with, with Reverend King, like sure. we're walking in line? Like does that, and hopefully that question well, makes sense. No, it's a great question. There are two parts to the answer. First yeah. of all, please remember the status conversation is separate from the affiliation versus dominance. Got it. Okay. Okay. So let's say you're a garden center. Some people are going to come into the garden center to replace a bush that's dead, right? Mm -hmm. Some people are going to come into the garden center to buy a huge brand new rose bush to put on their front yard. Well, we now know what each one is looking for in terms of status, right? Now, the person who's putting in the big rose bush isn't doing it to hurt their neighbors. They're doing it to give something to their neighbors, which is to raise the entire quality of the block and to hope that the neighbors catch on and do it too because they want affiliation with the neighbors and they'd like the status that they have vis-a-vis -vis every other neighborhood to go up because their neighborhood got more beautiful, right? So that's yeah. gardening as an affiliation play. Mm. But there's also gardening as a dominance play. If you go to the Hamptons, you see all these masters of the universe yep. that have nothing to do all summer but have a better garden than their neighbor. Yep. And I just read six weeks ago about a multi-million dollar lawsuit between two neighbors because one person came in the middle of the night with a tractor and dug up the other person's bushes because they didn't like that they were stealing their view, right? That's dominant. That's awful. It was funny. Well, okay, I'm also laughing because I actually have a friend who's in the middle of a, a dominance dispute in their yard right now and it's the perfect analogy. I completely get it. And I think it's like the whole thing is, I think, patently absurd. I think he knows that too, but that's interesting. So I guess taking that, rolling with that, it's like, then when it comes to marketing, the stories we're telling, conceptually, they would both need the same thing. They both need the bush, the plant, or the tree. But one's going to come to me because I'm, I'm saying, this is how you can be the best looking house in the block. And the other one's going to come to me because this is how we can create a you know, beautiful environment consistent, or we can kind of spread this beauty throughout your, we'll say, neighborhood, or, or keep you know, continually like maybe improving your yard. So it's more like, I don't know, I won't say internal, but it's just right. a different frame, right? Right. And so these stories have been intuitively told for years, but mm. I'm trying to lay it out for people to see that it's actually a thing yeah. and that we can do it on purpose. So it's also safe to say too, where if I was like, if I looked at this, I don't think this is the thing you're championing, but I'm kind of curious your perspective on it. If I was like, okay, within this idea of status and this is the market I'm in, and let's just go with the plants, the, gar the home, the garden and, and the home lawn care space and just think about this for a second. It is actually possible for me to say, okay, within that, I'm actually going to go after the fringe that want to dominate like the neighborhood with their lawn care improvement. So all my marketing could be about how it's like, you could be the best looking home in the block or have the biggest tree or whatever it is. So that is actually a viable path. That would meet kind of your criteria for extreme, right? Hypothetically. Have you ever seen a pumpkin growing competition? What do you think that is? Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Bring us the prize winning pumpkin and you can brag that's about funny. the fact that your pumpkin's bigger than everybody else's. So I'll tell you a true story that I heard years ago 
a guy did organic wheat killing in Philadelphia. Mm. And the first thing he discovered was that the buying cycle was very similar each time. And I'm using gender roles here, but that's because of what I heard. Wife comes home, says to the husband, there are weeds on the lawn. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of it. Three days later, he hasn't done anything. She complains again. Third time, he's in trouble. So he calls every weed company he can find in the phone book. And the first person to give him a good price, he hires. So what this company does is they use satellite maps and computers to figure out the price of every house before you call. So now instead of saying, we're going to have to come to your house, measure your yard, we'll give you a price in three days, you call and they say $482. So you get hired instantly. What's the story there? Well, the story is we will restore your status with your spouse and affiliation can happen again faster with us than with anyone else. Is there tension created in that moment? Of course, because I'm saying to myself, well, would I rather have be in the doghouse for three more days or pay the 480 bucks? That's a decision based on all of those factors. But then the last part that's really cool is that the first time you've ever heard of Frisbee spam. They send the guy out to do the work the next day with a stack of 15 Frisbees. And each Frisbee has written on the bottom, the top of the Frisbee is the logo of the company. And on the bottom of the Frisbee is an address and the price, because they know both of those. And as the guy's driving to the house where he's doing the work, he's tossing Frisbees on the lawns of the houses right next to him. Because the Frisbee says, I'm doing work on your block. Affiliation, right? Eliminating fear. So now someone gets home from work, they're on their way into the door and there's a Frisbee on the lawn. So they pick up the Frisbee and it says, I'm doing your neighbor's lawn. Your status is about to move down because you have weeds and he doesn't. Do you want to get in trouble or do you want to call me? And it was the fastest growing company of its kind. That's wild. This kind of brings up one, one other question I have for you. And I don't know if this is really a space that you explore per se, but I'm again, I'm just kind of curious about it. So I'll put it out there. How much of that, like whether somebody's interested in affiliation or dominance is like a character trait, a personality or disposition that, and maybe it doesn't even matter, I guess, from the standpoint of the marketer. I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious about that because I get, I've been reading about with this ecological approach to visual perception and a lot of stuff in psychology. There are some, there are some people who are consistent, yeah, but most people are not. So the example is I grew up, my uh, sisters did figure skating, which mm-hmm. means five o'clock in the morning at the rink, the whole thing. And the best figure skater, her father drove a Pepsi truck. So all day, he was an affiliator. He couldn't beat anyone at running a Pepsi truck. But in figure skating, he became someone seeking dominance. His, he was living vicariously through his daughter and put great pressure on her to win because he needed to feel like he won something. So if you had tried to sell him something during the day, he'd want something that would help him fit in. But if you're trying to sell him figure skating lessons, he wants something that's going to help him win. And again, yeah, actually, and, that, and that's it. It's like choose your edge, right? It's choose your extreme because yeah. there's, there's plenty of spaces where you can stand out. And I guess I think one of the, the major themes of this and many of the things you've written about is like pick an extreme and at least just don't blend into the crowd. Don't be part of that mass. It's like you'll get lost. And I'm curious now we're coming up to the, kind of the top of this conversation and it's been wonderful. We could go, I could personally go on for hours just pulling books off my bookshelf and ask you about specific books you've written, but I won't subject you to that. So yeah, we'll keep it short and sweet here. So, but I'd like to give you the the floor. Any other thoughts on this is marketing, kind of what you're doing with this book or your ideas on marketing that we haven't really explored today, but that you think are important or maybe like your main takeaway from kind of what you're doing with this book and trying to, what idea you're trying to spread with it? 
I guess I would say it's a privilege. It's a privilege to live in a place where we have the freedom to change the culture. And I hope we don't waste the privilege by making things worse. And my hope is that we'll use the privilege to make things better. I love it. Well, Seth Godin, thank you so much for being in the trenches. It was a pleasure to have you. This was fun. You can find out more at seths.blog slash T-I-M. And hopefully it'll resonate with you. That's what it's for. I think it will. We'll have it all lined up in the show notes. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. All right. Cheers. Thanks. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please do me a favor and go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes. That's T-O-M-M-O-R-K-E-S dot com slash iTunes and leave a rating and review for In the Trenches. Not only do I read and appreciate every review, but it helps spread the word of this podcast and allows me to continue to get on great guests. So thank you for your support and I'll catch you on the next broadcast of In the Trenches.